Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello and welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the China Shop. We're so excited you made it. We're opening up the doors today for another special guest interview episode. As always, I am shopkeeper Dan. With me is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. Kyle, how's your day going so far? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I do have a breakout order waiting to, to see if it, it tags this low here, but uh, I'll try not to be too distracted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, normally we do these aftermarket clothes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if, if we hear you jumping up and down screaming that, honey, I can finally afford that third car, we'll, we'll know what happened. More than likely it'll be, God damn it. There goes my profits for the day. <laughs> God, God damn it. Ramen again tonight. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Folks, sit back. We are joined by a very special guest today, but none other than James Andrew from Lightning Bridge. How are you doing today, James? I am doing great. Happy to be here. James, what is Lightning Bridge? It sounds it sounds dangerous. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's dangerous at all. It is quite powerful, and, <laughs> but ah, not in okay. a dangerous way. <laughs> You're riding on it. You're not being hit by it. <laughs> How many gigawatts does it take? <laughs> <laughs> what, well, what we're doing, we're one of the first companies to work in the space of of connecting a technology called Bitcoin Lightning, which is a layer on top of Bitcoin with other chains. And so essentially we're doing trading behind the scenes on behalf of customers that want to move into and out of these other tokens with a special focus on stable coins like a USDC, which is becoming a much more and more popular asset on many, many chains. And uh, usually when you want to buy it or, or, or sell it, you're dealing with credit cards onboarding and things like that and bank, bank connecting with banks and all. But we've got a way to do it with Bitcoin Lightning, which is an mm. up-and-coming network that I believe makes Bitcoin far more powerful than it is on its own. Interesting. So wait, uh, so Dan and I recently came into possession of uh, some crypto from a startup. Skydle tokens. Skydle tokens. Uh, and neither of us have figured out how to even like consider selling it. So is that something that this application could help us with? I, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what kind of token that is. I mean, if you could... If you could t turn it into USDC on an, on an exchange, then you could mm -hmm. use our app. A lot of those little tokens, the problem with them is they're only listed on some centralized exchanges. So yeah. to get them out of the ecosystem is not simple. We're mostly focusing on the, the major tokens like USDC and the, the base tokens of the, of the uh, chains that we're on, like on Solana oh, and okay. Polygon and all. There's, there's so many hundreds of thousands of tokens. I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a pain right now. We have to start somewhere with the big ones. Well, before we get too far ahead into what you're doing now, I want to make sure we take a, uh, a minute here to kind of talk about like your background, like how you got into the to 
to Wall Street in general? Like what like what's your what's what's your journey? Like your origin story, <laughs> if you will. I, I have a pretty wild, pretty unusual journey into Wall Street. I was uh, I was just this kid out in the Pocono Mountains, you know, like west of New York, growing mm-hmm. up there, you know, riding motorcycles, snowboarding, rock climbing and all that. And I right out of high school, I ended up uh, meeting someone or it was a friend of ours whose father was uh, someone that had a long uh, background in investment banking on, on Wall Street. And I got to hanging out with him when we go over to the house, I'd start talking with him. And I, at that time, discovered somehow through another friend of mine that there was this thing out there called day trading. Mm -hmm. You got to remember, this was brand new. It wasn't a thing that people did. We're talking, this is probably 1997. And back then, if you wanted to interact with the stock market, chances are the, the most cutting edge thing you were doing was using Charles Schwab. Yeah, right. You know, to, to, to like, to, and before that, if, if anything, if you were maybe like someone with a little bit more net worth, you might be dealing directly with like your broker at Merrill Lynch. And, and they were charging you at that time a thousand dollars to buy a thousand shares of Intel. <laughs> that was right. the commission. Yep, right. Wow. And then along came, a game changer, massive game changer. The first one that came out was called Daytech Online. It was the first website that said, you know what? We're going to do this different. You can come in here and you can trade for $20. Whoa. And we're going to give you direct access to market data. I mean, this is unheard of. And right around that time, there was also this, this thing that happened called where, where there, there started to be these places that you could go to do trading, to do day trading in these big, big rooms, almost like video arcades for adults. Just picture like 50 <laughs> trading terminals, right? And the minimum account size is like, you know, maybe like you could open for like 20 grand, but then you'd get like, get leverage on that. And you'd have people coming in there and just banging on the keyboard all day long, yelling and screaming. And it was like, it was kind of like a, it was like almost like a, a, like a multiplayer game party, <laughs> except there was yeah. high money stakes, right? <laughs> and I and I just thought this is so cool. I got to do this. And so this guy actually funded a Nasdaq trading account for me, and I ended up flying out to Houston to do this professionally. Like just it just went from like zero to doing that. And uh, I, I started doing. I started actually trading for a while, but then transitioned over to running. I, I ended up running the, the 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 New York Wall Street branch of this company. It was called Block Trading. It was one of the biggest ones of these firms. Before wow. you know it, I'm like there. Com- I was commuting from Pennsylvania to Wall Street every day as like a, a 19, 20 year old to run a trading floor. <laughs> and it was, I, it was wild. I, and I, and I was in charge. Like it was, there was, it, there was no one there. Like the guy that was running it before got recruited by this thing called the Island ECN, which a lot of us old timers remember was like the, the, it was sort of the first alternative market, the ECN market that gave NASDAQ competition. He went mm-hmm. to run it and said, you take my job. And I started running trading floors. And then I ended up r- moving over to another firm called Andover where I ran the whole firm operated it for a while with 24 trading floors. And I was all running through my desk every day. Like it was like air traffic control meets a military operation. (laughs) And and, and it was so intense. And I just learned how to do it on the fly. And I learned how to like, I mean, we're we're talking like server rooms with lines in from NASDAQ and from all the the alternative markets, et cetera. And then I noticed something while I had had a little bit of freedom because we had just done a deal with this company and we had brought some money in and we had our own floor, I said, you know what? I bet I could automate this. Mm. I bet I could figure out how to look at what these traders are doing and automate it. And so I actually did that. I sat down and I spent 30 days like trying to like just hack at the keyboard, looking for an opportunity, like trying things and say like, what could I do here that I could repeat 
by putting a computer on it to automate it. And I found something. I found mm-hmm. something that became I, I later called cross-exchange arbitrage, whereby I would look at the, uh, we would have the quotes from all the, see, there was multiple places that NASDAQ stocks were traded back then. They were mm-hmm. traded on NASDAQ, but they were also traded on these other markets like Instanet, Island, Archipelago, right. Bloomberg. And it was all these different markets and most people didn't have access to all of them, but we did. So I ended up finding a way to, to look when there was a low bid, let's say on Instanet, because the book had fallen off. And I would mm-hmm. go in and improve that bid with the idea that as soon as I got hit, I could flip it to the higher bid on another market and we could do it on the offer also. And it worked. And it worked for a few years. I had these programs running that were just bidding and offering all over on these uh, all NASDAQ 100 stocks and making these little arbitrage trades that uh, were very successful for a while. It was actually a very exciting time. It's, so you basically brought stability to the books. <laughs> it's funny but- you mentioned that because yeah that that is an actual people say what's good is day trading what good is automated trading well i call it liquidity routing mm-hmm. you're moving liquidity from one place to another and yeah you're bringing stability to the books and, okay so uh, let's rewind just a second here you, you said you had uh, somebody that you, you talked to that kind of that, that sponsored you basically you funded like yeah. what did you say to this guy to get him to to kick up a, an account and like fund you <laughs> oh this is many many years ago but i just remember saying i just remember saying look at this opportunity here there, there's this possibility to get this close to the markets and not many people are doing it yet. And it was just, it was so exciting. It was kind of like back like when crypto first started and everyone Mm -hmm. just realized there was something big here. When day trading started, it felt the same way. The the people that were smart knew there was something going on here and going on here big. And uh, it was, it was just, (laughs) that was about it. You didn't have to like, you know, show them like, okay, these are the paper trades that I've made. Like you didn't have to prove that to them. Like, there actually is no. I hadn't traded it all. There actually is another part to the story which I didn't tell, but it's kind of important. That and it's kind of funny. When I was calling around to these places to find out where we could do this, this is before he had committed an account to me. I mm-hmm. called up one of this place called Block Trading, and the brother of the owner answered. Right. And he yeah. said to me, he said, you know, we're expanding to 200 offices, but we're trying to raise money. We need to raise $10 million. And me on the other end, I, I said, you know, my friend used to be on Wall Street. He could probably get you that money. And he said, Oh, let's do it. And then about three days later, the <laughs> owner of this firm flew out to Pennsylvania to have breakfast with me and this guy to, to negotiate a, a 10 million, no, a $20 million was private placement that never actually happened. But it was like, I brought these two, this, this investor together with this guy and we're all sitting there at the table and it was just sort of decided, you know, James should really go out to Texas, go out to Houston and learn to trade and, and trade. And it was just done. <laughs> so that was my first business oh, deal. Wow. <laughs> it's that easy kids. It's that easy. <laughs> yeah. This was just, it was being in the right place at the right time and making the right phone calls. No, you know what? It was, it was making the right phone calls. I saw Steve jobs talking about this, about how, when he was younger, one of the first things he did to get kicked into his career was mm-hmm. he just called, called up Bill Hewlett, Hewlett from Hewlett Packard, like one of the biggest guys in the world at computers and asked him for some electronic parts. <laughs> and the guy was so impressed. The guy was so impressed. He gave him, he gave him a job as an intern and that kicked off his career. And he made the point. He said, look, there's a big difference between people that make the call and just try to go for the thing and people that don't. And you never know what happens. Sometimes you'd be surprised how easy things can come together when you make the call or you do the thing. <laughs> and so I think that was an example. That's an excellent point. Sometimes you just 
just got to take the plunge and just do Just go for it. Just try it. Yeah. Because what's the worst that would have happened if that they said no? Oh, it just wouldn't happen. I would have yeah. gone snowboarding or whatever. I was a kid. You know, I was young. You would have found another opportunity and tried tried your luck there. Yeah. Oh man, that's a hell of a story. <laughs> but well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really particularly have a very happy ending at that time because what happened then, and this was the late nineties, early two thousands, Wall Street. I, as one that didn't have like the background of a lot of these people and the deep pockets of a lot of the people I ended up dealing with, I mm-hmm. ended up having these programs all stolen from me. I mean, literally stolen by various uh, partners and or heads of firms that would just see these boxes and say, you know, we just don't need James. Let's go take his boxes. And I'd come in and all the computers would be ripped out of the wall and running oh. somewhere else. And they're like, sorry, we took them. And then I'd have to go. What are you going to do about it? Essentially, like just we're talking bad guys. There were some real bad yeah. guys on wall street. <laughs> not to say there's not now, but I mean, you, you, you hear about it, but like a lot of guys that get to the top at these firms, they got there because they're more ruthless than anyone else. It's just, right. it's just, and, and I kind of was at the brunt of that. And so I ended up essentially being driven out of wall street. I mean, I made some money along the way, but it didn't go to where it could have. And I ended up leaving and just doing what I call like 10 years, hard time in cubicle world. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, coding and like working as a programmer. And then that, then that uh, it kind of led up to where we are now, be the path to starting my own company when I saw crypto. Mm-hmm. So what, why did you make the switch to crypto then? Is it just because it's, it's new and you see opportunity to be innovative there? Or is there something else that draws you to it? When I first, you know, I, I was less and less interested in the traditional markets because as more and more of like the high frequency trading firms came in and the institutions came in in like the, the mid 2000s, it felt like the, the opportunity for a regular person to figure out how to gain alpha on the market was less and less and less and less. Mm-hmm. It was just saturated. And if you remember for a while, retail trading was just kind of dead. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that, that people did for a long time. And then in two, 2017, I saw saw the crypto exchanges popping up like mm-hmm. Poloniex, GDAX, these ones that were back there, Bitfinex. I saw these and I saw the screens and I saw the way they moved and it felt like a reboot. It felt like a reboot of markets and it just mm-hmm. felt like, wow, I, I saw the spreads and the, the way that they moved and it felt like this reminds me of the old days when it was sort of exciting and there was a lot of opportunity. It felt like potentially there's that much opportunity again uh, in these mm-hmm. new markets. So it's a way it kind of takes like what you did for for uh, bringing liquidity to the different books. You kind of have the same opportunity here now with crypto and the different uh, networks that are all just kind of like spread out all over the place. Well, yes. And there was one other thing that I developed back then that I didn't mention yet. That is what brought me back into the market with here. Back when mm-hmm. I was running my trading programs, I started applying 3D graphics, like real time, almost like video game graphics to uh, represent the actions of my programs and the actions of the order book. I came oh. up with this way of representing the order book in 3D over time. So like imagine a depth chart, you know, you just see like the histogram, you see like the, the, the wedges, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine if you take that and extrude it and you send it back through the screen in 3D. So you see the path patterns developing in real time. And I always had this idea that this could be like a new type of level two order book and a new type of trading could arise around like playing the game of learning to read this thing. And I had ah. tried to market it back in the day and it, it didn't really catch because it was very early and there was, uh, there was a lot of reasons. And so my first foray into crypto was building a little prototype of this 
thing that represented the markets in 3D. And that mm-hmm. was how I actually first got my company funded to build. We first started to build out the trading tools around this, but we've since pivoted as we've seen bigger opportunities. Huh. It's hard to explain without a, a visual here, you know, but it's uh, an audio. But I'm trying to think of like how that would work. So like what are the different axes uh, represent then? Uh, the access, the axes is left and right. You have price. You have the price mm-hmm. plane, I call it. And then in depth, you have time. So it's almost like taffy coming out of a taffy machine. You know, the taffy gets oh. pushed out of it. Imagine if you take a snapshot of the order book, where the bids, where the offers are. And I like to do it not even cumulative, just with like bars that represent where the orders are. And then you plot that and then you take another snapshot a half second later, another snapshot, and you stack them up back, back. You start to see patterns and you even see the actions of bots in there. And then you overlay the, the trades on top of it as like blocks that are taking out the other blocks. And it turns the, the market into sort of a video game kind of a thing. Huh. And it's still something that I would love to bring to the world, but I just haven't been able to kind of find the product market fit for it right now. Uh, if you do figure that out for Sierra charts, uh, send me a copy because I'd love to check it out. <laughs> <For futures. laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll send you guys a video after so you can see what I'm talking about, but it, I think you'll get it. Uh, do you have one that we can link for the episode description in case anybody else wants to check that out? Perfect. Yes, I do. Uh, yes, I think I do. Okay. Um, so, okay. Well, let's, let's, let's move on. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about some crypto then. One thing I'd love to talk about because it's what I'm really excited about now is Bitcoin lightning and what yes. that yes. is and how that yes. fits in. Cause this is something I think that everyone should keep their eye on because it is a new type of infrastructure for moving money around first for Bitcoin, but soon it will allow moving of other things that's growing at a very high rate, even with the market it falling off so can we back up just a second and tell what need is that filling like why is this important yeah that's this is a great question uh bitcoin while bitcoin has some really great features one of the features of its security is that in order to move it you're talking at least 10 minutes and really more Mm. to to move it because you're never able just to zap a quick payment on bitcoin because of the way the bitcoin network moves forward like at 10 minute paces it does you there's there's things called blocks that are made every 10 minutes and so if you just trade on if you just move money on bitcoin you're not going to see that movement of funds until a minimum of the next block, uh-huh. 10 minutes. And so that is a problem on its own. But when you add a feature on top of it in a, a layer, I mean, if you think about layers, layers are like what the whole internet is always built in. You've got layers, you've got like the TCP IP down below and you got your applications up above mm-hmm. and it, you're always building in layers when you're building network stuff. Bitcoin, I like to think of as, as a layer on the internet that moves money around. But now you need a layer on top of that to move money around quickly. And that mm-hmm. is what Bitcoin Lightning is. What it does is it enables anyone that runs a Bitcoin node, like if you had a Bitcoin node at your house or at your office or whatever, either of you, you can also run the Lightning software on it. Mm-hmm. And the Lightning software allows any two nodes to establish a, a liquidity channel a channel where you actually stake Bitcoin on the channel. It's almost like an escrow that locks the Bitcoin. And once you have that mm-hmm. at that Bitcoin locked, like let's say we put a Bitcoin in a channel. What that means is we can go back and forth with up to that amount 
as many times as we want. You can basically push the Bitcoin back and forth through the channel. And what's interesting is then if another one, another person makes a Bitcoin Lightning node, they can hook it up to the network and you start to get these connections. And if I want to make a payment, it will actually route from one node to the other, to the other, to the end, almost instantly. And along the way, each node earns a teeny fee. Usually, like we're talking like a hundred, a uh, hundred parts per million of mm-hmm. Satoshis, which is there's a hundred, hundred million Satoshis in a Bitcoin. So it's very inexpensive. But what happens is there's now over, uh, there's now thousands and thousands of these nodes, uh, all over. And you're starting to be able to zap little bits of Bitcoin or big bits of Bitcoin. You can, it, the capacity is going up and up all around the world instantly and you're starting to see institutions adopt this for moving funds intra institute or inter institution between two institutions for example i have lightning nodes set up with kraken mm-hmm. and with okcoin two of the big exchanges and that means i'm able to deposit funds and withdraw funds or move funds from one exchange to the other almost instantly hmm. and when you are trading that is always a big part of certain of many kinds of strategies, especially arbitrage strategies. Being able to move your money where it needs to go quickly is makes for more efficient markets. And mm-hmm. what what we have with Bitcoin Lightning is the, the fastest, most efficient way to move value around it, that that's out there. It's the fastest network for it. And I think it's something that's going to take on take on more and more energy and may become a, a very big uh, new network that can even compete with the like the global clearing networks like Swift that are out there. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and one final thing I'll mention about it is it was right now, it, it's starting to, it's, it was, it's originally used to move Bitcoin around, but there's a new protocol out, which is going to allow the issuance and the moving of other assets that you could like issue on this network that are representative of assets on another network, for example. Mm-hmm. So pretty soon you'll be able to like represent arbitrary assets on the Bitcoin Lightning network and move them around with this speed and efficiency. And so I I think it's something that's really good to keep your keep your eyes on. And if you're technical at all, like want to play with it, just setting up a Bitcoin Lightning node is like a really cool experience. And you can actually earn yield on your Bitcoin now just by setting up a node and actually charging these fees to route the payments. Huh. What do you need to, to set up a node? I assume that you got to have enough liquidity to be able to handle some of those transactions. Uh, well, you, you can actually set up with a pretty low amount, but it really you probably... To get going, it's like you probably should put like a, a Bitcoin into it to be really mm-hmm. like, you know, competitive with it, but you can get going with a lot less. And uh, the, what I recommend for setting up a node like this is you can uh, get a thing called the Umbrel, U-M-B-R-E-L, like the first letters of umbrella. It's at getumbrel.com and it's software that, that like packages all that you need to run a node into something that's very easy to set up. And you can, a lot of people set them up on, you get a little Raspberry Pi, which is like one of those little like mm-hmm. hobbyist computers. Yeah. And you yeah, basically yeah. can set up this like $75 computer that runs your lightning node. It's, and it's a, it's a thing that takes like a weekend to put together. But if you go through that process, you can have your own node running at home and start experimenting with, with opening channels to other nodes and setting your rates and starting to route payments. Well, now the, the kind of yield you're going to get, I mean, it's not great. Like just by turning it on, you'll probably get 1%, but there's ways you can cycle your money and get closer to 10% on your money. Uh, hmm. But this, I think, is going to 
increase as Bitcoin Lightning gets more popular. So if you have mm-hmm. one set up, you might be there to kind of catch that. I like the idea that you can do it with a much lower threshold as far as capital goes too, because I think that's one of the things that I didn't like about like setting up a Bitcoin or Ethereum like node itself is the yeah. capital requirements are so restrictive that it's out of the reach of many people's abilities. Yeah, especially mining right now. I mean, don't even try mining Bitcoin unless you're going to do it at an industrial <laughs> scale. It's just not worth it. Uh, Dan, you started to have a question, I think, before that. I'll uh, give you a chance to ask that before I take the conversation a different way. Oh, I, I was going to ask him, uh, what's the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? Oh, <laughs> that is a great question. Okay. I actually, I, I thought a lot about this. I wrote a, I wrote a post about this uh, recently called the intrinsic value of a Bitcoin. It's on Medium. And the whole question of what is intrinsic value is important here. And what I, the way I like to answer this is if you think about what value is in money, mm-hmm. back to the beginning of money, mm-hmm. money is really always a way of transferring information. What I mean by that is if you go back all the way to the back of like the origins of currency and you like use the mental example of an economy based on shells, Mm -hmm. right? Like let's say you're, you're on an island. There's like 10 people. You've just crash landed there. You're going to get rescued in a while, but you need money in the meantime. (laughs) You can pick up a bunch of shells, right? People did this from, let's say you found a hundred shells and you knew there was only a hundred of these. Somehow you knew there was only a hundred of these. You couldn't find any more of them and they were all pretty much identical. And what you've got there is called the monetary base. That's all the money in the world. And mm-hmm. then if you distribute these shells to each people, so everyone has 10, right? What you've got, when you all look around at these shells, you all know that you've got 10% of all the money. And so if I give you a shell, you, you know that what I'm giving you is something that represents 1% of all the money. And really, that's kind of what money always is. When you, whether it's gold or, or particularly commodity money, uh, like that, there's some amount of this thing which is serviceable to transfer information. Really, meaning when I give you an ounce of gold, it's you measure it, right? It's the number mm-hmm. there. It's like it's this much, right? It's this much, and you know there's estimated to be so much in the world. And then so people are start to are able to then start attaching a value relative to goods and services based upon that knowledge. And that's how an economy sort of boots up. And so what I see is that if you look at the shell economy or at gold, right, what you mm-hmm. have in Bitcoin is very much the same thing, except for the first time you don't need material. You don't need matter to answer that question of how much is this thing? Because with Bitcoin or how much of the all of it in the world is this amount that I'm giving you? Because with Bitcoin, you know that for the first time it's a digital thing can be scarce. That's provable digital scarcity is one mm-hmm. of the features of Bitcoin. And if you know there's 21 million ever and I'm giving you one Bitcoin, you know that that's one twenty-one millionth of the monetary base of the currency. And so it's very much the same thing as giving someone a certain amount of gold that is a known amount of all the gold in the world. And so uh, I like to say like gold is to atoms as Bitcoin is to bits. So for the first time, the, the creation or the uh, implementation of this technology, information technology really called money, 
does not need a physical substrate, but can exist in the purely digital realm. And I think that that is very powerful. And there, but therein is the intrinsic value of it, that this network is serviceable for producing this result of this thing called money. Okay. But you still need to get people uh, to, to put their faith in it, though. That's I think that's where the disconnect is. Like, what, there's no governments backing. Oh, I guess El Salvador, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no government. I mean, there's not necessarily a government backing gold either. You right. know, gold has been around, and so it's the same thing. Why do people put their quote faith in gold? I think it's that it has proven to be a serviceable instrument because of its all the features of it. You know, its divisibility and fungibility, uh-huh. etc. Tr- transportability that makes it useful as a carrier of this information that is called value. And so people have gravitated toward that for years, uh, for many, many years. And I feel like Bitcoin has started to prove that people will gravitate to it for the same reasons, except it has superior features, like that you can transport it around the world instantly. Can I make jewelry out of it to display my Bitcoin wealth? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I would say that the the value of gold in terms of its ability to make jewelry or its ability to be used in circuit boards or dental work is really not particularly that relevant to its value as a currency. I think hmm. it's sort of a separate feature and that it's interesting, but it's not why it is valuable, I don't believe. Huh. Yeah, I don't know enough about the history of gold and, and why people first started mining it. Yeah, I've always attached the like the gold's strength and, and history has always been, in my thoughts, as it's always been something that people wanted just because of its physical characteristics and properties. Like that's always been the the link that I've had a hard time making with Bitcoin and, and understanding why it should stand the, the test of time. But I think I think regardless of however you feel about it, the fact is that Bitcoin has a proven track record at this point. Yes. yes. Yeah. Here's maybe a better, here's maybe a better example, although it's less popular than gold. If you go back in history to many, many uh, different nations that had their own system of money, mm-hmm. many times the system of money was actually a system of, of, a, of a ledger, of a record keeping on a ledger. For instance, mm-hmm. there's many economies that uh, they would record purchases and sales of uh, r- real estate by marking marks in big rocks on their island. Yeah. Like this rock <laughs> has a mark in it. Yeah, because everyone could see that the following happened and there would be this big mark in the rock, which was a ledger that says this thing went from this owner to this owner. Other countries did it with different patterns of beads where they were marking uh, uh, occurrences and transactions in a ledger. And so I think money has always been sort of a ledger mm-hmm. and that's what uh, Bitcoin does really well. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, now you're, now you're talking my language. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, because uh, I mean, it wasn't math like pretty much developed or, or saw its explosion in use of because of accounting yeah yeah yeah, i think that's true like i think if you look at like the way the digits are even uh like how they came about like the one the two the three like those are all based on like accounting accounting principles look i gave you 10 sheep kyle right i gave you 10 not there's a record here yeah exactly (laughs) exactly. (laughs) uh you mentioned uh stable coins uh, increasing in popularity i was actually curious would you mind chatting about the uh the the recent issues that that popped up at luna like do you know what why did that fail so spectacularly and is anybody else in danger of following like Uh, into similar pattern 
Well, I must disclaim that I'm not an expert on the Luna situation. But okay. from what I see, Luna was a particular type of a stablecoin called an algorithmic stablecoin that was attempting to be backed by Bitcoin itself, I believe, mm-hmm. which itself is a volatile asset. <laughs> so no. there's kind of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Like the, that's a big question. When you have it when when someone says stablecoin, the first question you should ask is stable to what? Ah, right? yes. And so the problem with Luna is they the answer to that question was not strong enough to weather the volatility of the market. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting experiment, but it did not work. The kind of stable coins that I see are gaining a lot more traction are those that have a much better answer, at least for now, to that question, like USDC, which is put mm-hmm. out by Circle. And there, I mean, it's really just a new way of transacting uh, regular dollars or what we in the Bitcoin world call fiat, mm-hmm. right? We've got this regular dollar. What they have with uh, USDC is what they also claim to have with Tether, although there's been controversy about whether they do. That mm-hmm. is $1 somewhere, actual dollar in a bank somewhere repre- that represent is represented by these tokens. Mm-hmm. And so USDC is doing it that way. So I think this is the kind of stable coin that is I'm seeing gain a lot more traction right now. I was just out in San Francisco for the Circle conference, and uh, I had also just been at a Web3 conference in New York right before it, and the energy difference was incredible. Like there was some energy at the Web3 conference, but you know it's a bear market. Everyone's trying to figure mm-hmm. out sort of what's next. But over at the Stablecoin conference in San Francisco at Moscone Center, there was so much energy in that room. There were so many people very excited about working in. With these stable coins, and you're starting to see companies like like Visa had a booth there. Mm. You know, like why is Visa have a booth here at this crypto thing? Because there's this narrative that's happening where crypto, and particularly these stable coins, are really a whole new way of making payments, and that has nothing to do necessarily with you know NFTs or metaverse stuff or games or all this other stuff that is quote unquote Web three, but just purely as a way to send and receive payments. And merchants are out there starting to want to accept USDC instead of dollars. That's happening out there in various Mm. places. And so I think that that area is having a lot of energy on it right now. These stable coins that are, that are backed by dollars. So what's, what makes that, uh, like, what's the special about a stable coin then? Like, why, why not just use dollars? Well, that's, I, I think it's because also it's, look at it this way. There's a next generation infrastructure mm-hmm. that is superior for moving these digital dollars around that is far superior to the movement of dollars. I mean, think about how hard it is. I mean, there's like certain things you just can't do with dollars. You can't charge someone on their credit card 10 cents. Mm-hmm. It's not economic. There's minimums because there's minimums in terms of clearing costs. And you look everywhere, there's all these big inefficiencies. You know, you get a wire transfer into your account. It's going to take like maybe a day, maybe more. Right. You know, they may be like a long time, but with moving USDC, depending upon what network, uh, you can have it in seconds. And that's what we are focusing on with Lightning Bridge is moving these tokens very fast, as fast as possible so that you, you get them immediately. So I think it's like any other thing with technology, when particularly with money, when it, whenever I see a way for money to move much more quickly than the standard way, money tends to gravitate toward that faster path. You know, money wants to move as fast as it can move. Right. And so when I see these USDC being able to zap around the world for almost no cost, 
it's just a, a, a whole new, a, a, a new way of moving money, and it's superior for that reason. You can see why an institution would be interested in something like that. Very much so. That's really funny because I used to think that that was just the banks being, you know, whatever a bank, you know, nefarious or, or but you know, the cynical in me, basically. Whenever I say like, oh, I just moved a thousand dollars from this account to this account. They know it's gone instantaneously. They know yeah. the money was in one and they know it's in the other one. They're just being slow because they can. And they're earning on it. <laughs> they're earning <laughs> on your money. They're earning interest on that money. <laughs> it's true. But you're saying that it actually is that slow. Well, I mean, I think there's incentives to keep it slow, mm-hmm. right? They, because why would they want to not, why would they, if they can hold on to your money for the night, you know, they earn interest on that and that, that, that matters to them. Which means that somebody else has it at that point too then, right? So now that I think about it, like, yeah, they have to go get that money out of whatever vehicle it's in earning that interest and then transfer it to the other spot yes and it's it's slow and and mm. move whether you're moving stable coins or particularly this is why i like bitcoin lightning it is just a much faster and cheaper way and more efficient way of moving value around the world uh do you do anything with ethereum too is that uh, tradable on your networks well, yes, we are We are particularly focusing on what's called the Ethereum Layer 2s. There's these things mm-hmm. called Polygon, Arbitrum Optimism, which are layers on top of Ethereum that have benefits because they're cheaper. But the answer is yes, and you will be able to move uh, stable coins to Ethereum. What are your thoughts on the direction that Ethereum has moved, uh, changing from proof of work to proof of stake? I think it's too early to tell. I think that there's a lot of reasons why proof of stake, even if it works, potentially is has problems in terms of the dynamics it creates and who has the power over the network. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the whole point of proof of work mining is that it's not really like that. that whoever has the most coin... Uh, controls the consensus algorithm. It doesn't really work like that. And so I think that for Bitcoin, particularly moving to proof of stake would be very bad. But since Ethereum is not really doing the same thing as Bitcoin, it's more a place to run applications. And as long as you realize it's that, the fact that it's moving to proof of stake, I mean, whether it should be in some ideal world, whether that's like bad or good, I think it actually might work out for them. Like it Mm -hmm. seems to work. And unless there's some big gotcha that like, Within the next year, everyone realizes, oh, wait, it didn't work because of something we didn't realize. And now Ethereum's fundamentally broken. It's kind of a big experiment. If that happens, then it will turn out not to be good. But I think it's too soon to tell. Is that a risk? <laughs> I, I would say yes. It's absolutely a risk. Tr- that's what I love about Bitcoin's proof of work mining. It works. You know, it's it's been proven to work for about 12 years. And mm-hmm. so it works. And so moving off of that to some whole new way that has never really been proven is a risk for sure. So what is the future of, of cryptos then? Like, you, you seem to be really excited and think that we're going to be moving to a, in a direction that these are going to be utilized a lot more in our, everyone's day-to-day lives, I'm guessing. I I think so. I think that the some of the biggest use cases really haven't been developed yet. What what I think that generally may happen is I think that these various chains like you know, Solana and Polygon and all these they I think are are really turning into almost like a next generation of cloud computing. Hmm. Whereas instead of all the machines running in Amazon or running in Microsoft Azure or running in Google Cloud. You know, these are usually what this is what you do whenever you're interacting with a big online company. You're going to Airbnb, you're going to Yelp. You're really using machines that are running at one company's 
building. Right. Right. And so what you have with something like Solana or these other chains is at least it kind of decentralizes that a little bit. So the code that's running is running on computers all over the world at many different companies' data centers. And so it does sort of take a little bit of power or maybe a lot of power away from the big cloud providers and puts them into this new category of distributed computing system. And I I like to think of these chains as sort of the application chains where you're going to run different applications. But for money, the real money of the world, I think Bitcoin is the ideal chain for it with lightning on top of it. So what I think will happen or what I think may happen is that Bitcoin with lightning added to it may end up being that sort of clearing network that allows you to move value from one of these application chains to another. And then these Mm -hmm. application chains can focus on whatever application they're running. And I think many of these use cases haven't really been found yet, but I think they will be. Dan, do you remember who we talked to? Was that Alex that was telling us about the the use of like the the blockchain ledgers and like trying to use those to like uh, um, run like your logistics or, or use them for like contracts? negotiations i think it was yeah yeah it would be like your car title is now on the yeah. blockchain yeah i you know I, I i hear about this but i still wonder like any of these applications where you have to like tie it to a to like some physical thing or a physical asset somebody still needs to enforce that you know the idea that you're especially like hmm. real estate and stuff you're still gonna like let's say you put a deed you know on a blockchain well so what if somebody's squatting on your land it won't get off and you're gonna just show them your blockchain proof that it's yours, right? You're still going to need to take that person to court and someone's going to need to come there and move them off of your land because they decided you were right. You know, you still need a legal system in a world. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. a lot of times people kind of gloss over that kind of stuff. Well, if it's on a blockchain, it will just work. I, I don't think I don't. I think it remains to be seen how useful a blockchain will be for those sorts of things versus sort of purely digital things. I never thought of it as something for enforcement. I thought of it as something that was just better, tr- uh, better trust in the records that we do keep. Well, yeah, but my point is that you still need that. Infor- you need force and coercion in a society to make people do things <laughs> or enforce, not do things. Yes. <laughs> right? Anywhere. You can't just say, well, we have this great record. Everything's great now. It doesn't work like that. But it, mm-hmm. but I, I, it remains to be seen how that will play. Look, didn't you see the beads carved there on the rock? Come yeah, right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, yes, so, I'm enough. sure someone enforced those things even at the time, right? Yes, exactly. Part of the word enforce, right? Force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Force. Yes. <laughs> Uh, there's so many new terms that I'm probably gonna have to spend a little bit of time researching uh, after this conversation. Right, cool. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel your excitement, and and I really want to definitely check this out some more. Um, where can people find more information about Lightning Bridge? Yeah, well, you can actually use it right now at lightningbridge.com. We have we're online with uh, several chains, with Solana and Polygon, and you can just play with it real easy. See how see how easy it is. You can use Cash App to send uh, to send Bitcoin to it, and you'll see it appear on the other chain very quickly. And so, also, you can look for our Twitter if you just search for Lightning Bridge. Just follow our follow our Twitter. Awesome. And your personal Twitter at Pixel Router. If people want to follow you. Yeah, Pixel Router. P i x e l Router, like the thing that you hook up to your computers at home. Pixel Router. That hopefully works well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when can we get the, some blockchain uh, carried over to, to fixing router issues? Oh, right. Can we de- decentralize my Wi-Fi? Decentral- there are people working on that, on different types of like decentral. Yeah, there's there's a, there's some things happening in that area. I like the idea of seeing like people doing like supply chain logistics using 
uh, blockchain networks. I know there's still people working on it. There was many mm-hmm. people working on it in 2017, 2018, but most of those things didn't pan out. But a lot of times that's the way things happen. You know, the first people to try it doesn't work, but then someone figures it out. Uh, well, the other interesting thing too is when you try to, to develop an application like that, you end up finding another use for it. Like, oh, it didn't work for this, but oh, here's this other need that this actually perfectly fills. Yeah, that's kind of what happened with our company here. We were first making uh, trading tools and 3D trading interfaces. And then we realized, wait a minute, people really just want to move money on and off these chains real quickly. So let's like reform this thing. And now I think we have something with a lot broader appeal. So all the time that happens. Now, do you personally trade crypto? I stay away from trading particularly myself now because I learned a long time ago the only way I like to trade is if it's a sure thing. Like an arbitrage, you know, like because I've learned that like seriously, like most people that trade, if you just sit there and trade, you just uh, I some people can do it. I the my learning back in the day was figure out how to find a sure thing and automate it. And I haven't mm. found that yet again, but I, I would love to find it <laughs> and do it again. <laughs> You, my friend, are stellar candidate for insider trading. Let me tell you about this thing. It is phenomenal. Just remember, deny, deny, deny. <laughs> exactly. I didn't know it was insider. I just thought it was a guy I was golfing with. James, is there anything uh, anything big on the horizon coming up for you guys? Do you want to take a moment to tell everyone about? Uh, well, we're just doing our first big marketing push right now. So you'll start to see ads for what we're doing right now. And uh, we're looking to implement stable coins across all the networks that USDC supports. So if you're into moving stable coins quickly, keep an eye on Lightning Bridge. And that's what we're going to be focusing on. All right. We'll make sure we uh, we need to follow up with you then once uh, some of those things start getting implemented. Yes. Sounds good. All right. Dan, do you have anything else for our guest today? No, this has been, uh, I think, one of my favorite crypto conversations that we've ever had. <laughs> cool. I think so, too. All right. I, I would agree with that. One, you didn't shy away from the Dan's cantankerous nature when he <laughs> challenged you on the intrinsic value. Oh, man, I love talking about that stuff. <laughs> some people don't. Some people don't like that. Yeah, yeah. But no, I really liked your answers, and uh, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I, I liked what you had to say about the, the the store of value or information, using it as as basically just a means of, of conveying mm-hmm. information. I'll, I'll yeah, definitely yeah. carry that forward. My thoughts going cool. forward. Excellent. If nobody else has anything else, I guess we can go ahead and uh, kick everyone out, unfortunately. Yeah, been a, been a pleasure, guys. Thank you, James. <laughs> this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you, listeners, for making it all the way to the end. I know I learned a few things. I hope you did, too. We'll be coming back at you soon with some more exciting episodes. But for now, we got to close up shop. So remember, as always, like, share, subscribe, tell your enemies, tell your friends. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on, Dan. Yep. Did you did you give our guest a chance to? T- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, oh no, I heard you do it though. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, all right, all right, folks. Until next time, happy trades. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.